100% ad-free episodes, and more. Available at patreon.com slash tapes from the dark side. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Tapes from the Dark Side contains descriptions of violence and sexuality. Listener discretion is advised. What is it about certain crimes that imbue them with the power to captivate a nation? I believe part of the answer lies in our intro. Everyone has a bit of a fascination with the Dark Side. But what predicates this fascination? When I hear a morbid tale of death or some other tragedy, it personally reminds me of my own mortality and gives cause, even if only for a moment, to reflect on my own life. This moment in time is special. This moment of life. I forgot exactly where I heard it and I tried to Google it to no avail, but there's a phrase I once heard, the living are truly the envy of all the dead. In the Bogle Chandler case specifically, I think we are drawn to the unmistakable mystery of the whole affair. We have seen it in other infamous true crime cases that have grabbed our attention. John Bonet, The Black Dahlia, Jack the Ripper, and The Zodiac Killer, just to name a few. Human beings are born with an inner drive towards discovery and conquest. We want to know the how and the why. And sometimes that itch can drive us to obsession or even madness. As we dig further into this particular mystery, we'll examine the many theories proposed by the police, coroner, and, perhaps most notoriously, the media. They will give many explanations, which vary in plausibility, as to what occurred in the early morning hours of January 1st, 1963, from homicidal revenge to a suicidal lover's pact, an LSD overdose, CIA assassination, and even a practical joke gone wrong. I do believe that at the end of the day, we are ultimately presented with a sensible explanation, and it has satisfied my itch to a certain degree. Will it satisfy yours? Everyone has a bit of a fascination with the dark side. I myself have always loved the dark side as well. I think it's something that everyone secretly longs for and wants. This was by far the biggest crime case up to that stage in Australia, and I'm not sure whether there would be one to match it now. 
The Nash's guest list was carefully curated to allow for a diverse range of interests and professional backgrounds. The invitation to the party read, You are cordially invited to attend the opening and first showing of the Nash Galleries on New Year's Eve at 9 p.m. At the bottom of the invitation were the terms of admission, an original art contribution of your own creation in any medium or dimension. The directors reserve the right to negotiate for the retention of any exhibit. It was a cheeky way for the Nashes to invite their attendees to bring an original piece of artwork, essentially a way to create a talking point for the evening. As the guests arrived, they were given name tags so that those unacquainted could easily join in conversation. Bogle was the first guest to arrive at 9.30 p.m., driving his 13-year-old Ford Prefect and wearing a smart blue-gray suit. His artistic contribution of the evening was an abstract sketch in the style of Picasso. This sketch depicted a woman's face and featured a disembodied severed foot and hand. We'll have a link to that picture in the show notes if you want to see it. Ever the gracious guest, Bogle also brought along a box of chocolates for his hosts, as well as his clarinet for entertainment. If you'll recall, Vivian drew the short straw on the evening's childcare duties and stayed home to care for their four-month-old daughter who was feeling under the weather. The Chandlers, on the other hand, dropped their two sons at Margaret's parents' house at 7.30 p.m. They stayed there to socialize for a couple hours before leaving for the party and arriving at around 10 p.m. in their distinct silver vintage 1924 Vauxhall automobile. They hadn't brought along any artwork, but given the lateness of the invitation, this was understandable. Jeffrey was underdressed, another minor consequence of the late invitation, but the Nashes had better manners than to point this out. Margaret was indeed his better half of the night. She wore high heel sandals and a brand new dress she bought from Kerr's Ladies' Wear a couple days before Christmas. It was a cream sleeveless T-length dress with a full skirt and pattern in a festive rose print. She also brought along some plain brown shoes to wear if the high heels became too burdensome, as well as two different handbags to match the shoes depending on which pair she was wearing seems that Margaret had thought out the night well in advance. The Chandlers didn't really know anyone else at the party besides for the Nashes and Dr. Bogle. And to be frank, it really wasn't Jeffrey's scene. He felt more comfortable in the Sydney Push crowd. And adding to this was the embarrassment of being underdressed. Jeffrey later wrote his thoughts on the party that night in a book he published in 1969, cheekily titled, So You Think I Did It. I can remember the mood in which I went to that party, a mood not quite of apathy, not quite of irritation. Ruth Nash had said each guest was expected to bring some artistic object, which would be displayed. I gained little to no enjoyment from that kind of thing, and I personally had no intention of contributing anything. Jeffrey arrived wearing sandals and sporting a beard. Facial hair was a pretty sure sign way of spotting a bohemian, and Jeffrey had no shortage of it. 
The media would later grab at this detail as a way of painting him in a mysterious and scandalous light. Bogle was more than pleased to see that Margaret had arrived, and Jeffrey later said he overheard their conversation upon greeting. Is your wife here? Margaret inquired. No, our youngest isn't well. I should have stayed at home, I suppose, said Bogle. Yes, I think so, Margaret retorted, to which Bogle eyed flirtatiously. And not see you again? The Nash home was characteristic of the upper-class houses in the Chatswood neighborhood. Again, from Jeffrey's book, this is how he described the place. It was a typical square bungalow, built in the 1930s, set in a square garden on a leafy street. From its open veranda steps leading to the garden with a path leading to the street. There may or may not have been Art Nouveau colored glass in the fanlights, so beloved of architects then, but I cannot be certain. Sounds of metropolitan Sydney came distilled through gum trees. Someone had been mowing and then watering, and the scents lingered. It was a civilized and sedate event with no one drinking to excess. Ken Nash supervised the drinks. It was later carefully counted that in the 10 hours and 24 people, they had gone through only 16 bottles of beer and a few bottles of liquor, one scotch, one gin, and one vodka. Margaret and Jeffrey seemed relaxed enough, but initially kept to themselves. In contrast, Dr. Bogle moved easily amongst the guests, his usual gregarious self, chatting freely and well-animated. The art pieces served their intended purpose and certainly generated discussion. One piece, a sculpture of red wire, alarm clock, and a fried egg. Another, a sheep's jaw clamped around a sponge, sitting atop a record player. The party proceeded as planned, the guests snacking on hors d'oeuvres, partaking in light drink, and exchanging pleasantries as the night unspun itself. Around 11.30 p.m., Jeffrey left to buy cigarettes. He didn't feel the need to tell anyone, as he figured he'd be back soon enough. As he drove along, he saw that none of the usual corner shops were open, and as he was now some distance from the Nashes, he decided to drive to the waterfront suburb of Balmain, in the inner west side, where Jeffrey knew his friends were holding another party, a Sydney push party. This was a much larger gathering of around 100 partygoers officially hosted by an economic history academic from the University of Sydney. Upon arriving, Jeffrey immediately felt at home. These were his people. Back at the Nash home, it had struck midnight and the guests gathered to sing Auld Lang Syne and couples shared the customary midnight kiss. A few minutes later is when Ken and Ruth Nash said they noticed Jeffrey's car had gone and that he'd left the party. Meanwhile, Margaret and Bogle were chatting intimately by themselves in the backyard. Ken flicked off the outside porch light, killing the mood. Taking the hint, Bogle and Margaret took their conversation back inside amongst the fellow partygoers. Just a note that there's nothing in our research to indicate that Ken Nash was aware of Bogle's philandering. But being that Bogle was a friend, co-worker, and regular attendee of the Nash's New Year's Eve parties, it's hard to believe that he was completely oblivious to his colleagues' penchant for married women. By the time that Ruth had served a light supper around 3 a.m., Ken had noticed that Jeffrey had returned from his so-called cigarette jaunt. 
Margaret nibbled on some chicken and asparagus, but declined the hot appetizer. After coffee was served, Ken saw Margaret and Jeffrey sitting together in the lounge around 3.35 a.m. Bogle, with his radar still locked firmly on Margaret, joined them a few minutes later. They were served coffee, a detail that might be relevant later on. Margaret and Bogle accepted the coffee, but Jeffrey declined. Jeffrey left his wife alone with Dr. Bogle and went off to mingle with whatever guests might have remained as the night silently slipped into early morning. At around 4.20 a.m., Bogle asked Ken Nash if he could retrieve his sketch so he might return home with it to show his kids. He then thanked Ruth Nash for the lovely evening and seemingly began to prepare for departure. As the Nashes were farewelling other guests shortly after, Ken saw Margaret Chandler on the front steps as she walked down the front path towards the street where the cars were parked. Neither Ken Nash nor his wife Ruth said that they saw Jeffrey again that night, and in fact, they couldn't recall Jeffrey or Margaret saying goodbye, though these details didn't seem odd at the time. As the Nashes stood out of the front house waving goodbye to guests, dawn was breaking. There were still a few guests lingering who would reportedly stay until 7 a.m. Being summer, there was already enough natural light for Ruth to see the neighborhood milkman, a hundred yards up the road doing the morning run. And even though it was the New Year holiday, there were, unfortunately for him, no days off for the milkman. Around 7 a.m., Vivian Bogle began to worry. She called the Nash residence and Ruth answered. Vivian told her that Bogle hadn't arrived home and she was concerned her husband could be in trouble, perhaps a car accident. Ruth assured her the party was actually not long wrapped up. Perhaps he'd pulled over on a quiet street somewhere for a nap. Besides, at this hour, Ruth Nash was dog-tired herself. Not only that, but she had an entire house to clean. What Vivian, and no one else for that matter, knew at the time was that Bogle lay half-naked and dead on the bank of Lane Cove River. And less than 20 yards away was the also half-naked body of Margaret Chandler. After the bodies were discovered and the police alerted, Bogle was the first to be identified. Officers visited Vivian around 10 a.m. to deliver the death message. She was so shocked that she reportedly collapsed. As Margaret Chandler had no identification on her person, her ID took a little longer. When police finally knocked on the door of the Chandler home around 1 p.m., Jeffrey was sound asleep. Not only had it been a late night for him, but he'd done a lot of driving more than simply to and from the party, which we'll get to later. All in all, that night he had driven around 80 miles. Jeffrey complied with the officers at his front door and accompanied them to the nearby Burwood Police Station. Soon after, they headed over to the Chatswood Police Station, where police sat Jeffrey down and coldly showed him the front page of that day's afternoon newspaper. The main story named Margaret as being found dead near the body of Dr. Bogle. He was aghast as the shocking news sank in. But for the police, this was a carefully calculated move. 
They were watching Jeffrey's every facial expression, trying to glean anything they could from his reaction. As anyone familiar with the true crime genre knows well, it's the people closest to a victim who are the first suspects, and for good reason. Most murders are committed by family or at least intimate friends. This is simply a matter of statistics. The Chatswood police made it plain that they expected Jeffrey to provide answers regarding his wife's sudden death. Jeffrey had an unsatisfying response. He told police not only had he no information regarding Margaret's sudden death, but he hadn't the faintest clue of who would want to harm her in the first place. The investigators were hardly satisfied. Back at the riverbank, the government medical officer arrived at 1.30 p.m. to inspect the bodies in situ. It was clear that Bogle and Margaret weren't the only ones who knew of this particular spot. Used condoms and a burnt candle had been discarded in the immediate vicinity. Bogle was found lying face down on his stomach. His bent arm was partly tucked under the front of his body, while his right was extended above his head at a right angle. Rigor mortis had set in and he was stiff as a board, toes pointing straight at the ground and legs at full extension. The report said that his face was a deep blue purple and his eyes were frozen in a wide open state. There was some dried blood coming from his right nostril and not too far from his body were vomit and excrement. Though perhaps the most peculiar detail is the cut out piece of carpet laid atop Bogle's body. And on top of the strip of carpet was the man's neatly folded coat and trousers. The mysterious nature of the case was suddenly compounded 100-fold. Why would someone maliciously poison a man only to wait around until after his death to cover the body with a muddy piece of carpet no less and then place his victim's carefully folded clothes on top like a madman's version of the star adorning the family Christmas tree? It seems like a rather intimate thing to choose to do. The carpet was theorized to come from the trunk of Bogle's car, parked 150 yards away, down a narrow dirt walking trail. Near Bogle's body lay a pair of women's underwear and women's shoes. Bogle's belt had been removed from his trousers and discarded. Curiously, the three items had been dropped on the riverbed in a straight line, like a depraved reimagining of Hansel and Gretel. The back of Bogle's shirt was stained with dirt, as were the elbows. Parts of his shoes were covered in mud, and not far from where he lay, there were two marks on the ground, indicating someone had slid down the riverbank in their shoes. Margaret's body was partially in rigor mortis and was said to be still warm when police had arrived earlier that morning and removed the cardboard covering her body at around 10.55 a.m. She was found about 15 yards further down the riverbank from where Bogle was, in a depression about 5 feet by 2 feet in dimension. At her ankles lay a pair of men's wet, soiled underwear. Her half-slip was ripped and stained with mud as if she'd fallen on her knees, and she sustained an abrasion on the bridge of her nose about half an inch long. There were minor scratches on her shoulders, and mud was evident at the tops of her toes as well as at her feet and knees, but curiously, there was no mud or dirt on her hands. On the dry part of the riverbed, which was covered in needles from overhanging branches of she-oak trees, were knee impressions. Had Margaret tried to crawl towards or away from something? Had she been involuntarily dragged by someone 
And if so, was this before or after her death? Given the lack of footprints on the riverbank, it made dragging by another person seem less likely. And besides the few aforementioned scratches and the cut on Margaret's nose, there were no signs of physical violence on either of the bodies. No strangulation marks, no bullet wounds, no cuts, and after further examination, no apparent hypodermic needle marks. Yet death by some type of poisoning seemed to be the only plausible hypothesis. The bushland at this part of the river was thick and it was hard to see long distances. The couple had walked a some 150 yards from where the car was parked, which is only about a three minute walk, but it's enough distance to create privacy. To take advantage of the most concealed areas, you need to hop down from the walking path onto the riverbank, down onto the riverbed, which is where Bogle and Margaret were found. The first hypothesis might be that the pair were having sex on the ground when they were accosted or overcome. But the two by three foot carpet covering Bogle's body was filthy with mud and barely big enough to accommodate the partial body of one person, let alone two. Unless it was only meant to act as a barrier between the dirt and a woman's backside so the man could position himself above her or vice versa. Nevertheless, it was an entirely puzzling scene. If someone had caused their deaths, could theft have been a motive? Margaret's purse was missing, which meant it couldn't be ruled out. Though Bogle's car was unlocked, his windows rolled down, and police found his car keys concealed in the sun visor. Wouldn't a thief be more interested in a car than a purse? Jeffrey remained at the Chatswood Police Station from 3 p.m. New Year's Day until 1 a.m. the following morning, an incredible 10 hours of interrogation on barely a few hours of sleep. With this in mind, we might imagine Jeffrey's fragile mental state. He recounted his version of events leading up to the party, including Bogle and Margaret's first meeting only 10 days prior. Jeffrey told police that on their way home from the CSIRO Christmas party, Margaret told him she was drawn to Bogle and found him attractive. It was obvious to Jeffrey that there was an instant rapport among the two. From Jeffrey's book, quote, In a way, I was flattered. At least two women had told me that Bogle was a fascinating man, and it's always gratifying to have one's choice in one's wife borne out by another man's attentions to her. This is something that the officers, being strangers to the sexually liberated ideas of the Sydney push, simply could not wrap their heads around. If a man happened to show interest in your wife, it was a given that you were to push back with jealous bravado, not passive curiosity. So when police heard that Margaret told her husband that having a sexual liaison with another man sounded like, quote, an interesting experience, the officers were not simply suspicious, but outright confounded. Jeffrey also told them that this wasn't the first time during their marriage that his wife had taken another lover. In his words, he responded to Margaret's comments with, quote, If you want to have Gibb as a lover, if it would make you happy, you do it. Jeffrey told investigators that after he returned to the Nash party, an arrangement was made. Bogle would take Margaret back to her and Jeffrey's home in Croydon, Jeffrey would be responsible for picking up the children from his in-laws in the morning, 
which would leave Margaret and Bogle to enjoy each other in the privacy of his house, alone. Quite the selfless arrangement on his part. All three parties seemed to be in agreement, and this plan was set into action. Though this new revelation, if true, added another complication. If Bogle and Margaret had a private house available to them, why would they have chosen the muddy embankment of Lane Cove? The whole plot sounded convoluted and quite simply unreasonable to police. But in order to disprove Jeffrey's story, they would need to know his precise movements on that night. Jeffrey told officers that around 11.30 p.m. he left Margaret at the Nashes to go for cigarettes. After failing to find a shop that was open, he drove to the Balmain party where the Sydney push crowd was celebrating. Arriving around midnight, he met up with a 21-year-old Sydney University secretary named Pamela Logan. Jeffrey had been having relations with the young Pamela for around five months. At 2 a.m., Pamela and Jeffrey, in separate cars, drove to where Pamela lived in the inner suburb of Darlington. Around half an hour later, Jeffrey drove back to the Nash's party, where he and Margaret enjoyed another drink. It was shortly after supper and coffee were served that Margaret, Jeffrey, and Bogle confirmed their plan. It was then that Bogle gained permission from Jeffrey to take Margaret to the Chandler home. Now, it's one thing to talk about giving your wife away to another man, and it's another thing entirely to actually go through with it. And even though Jeffrey and Margaret had made similar arrangements in the past, and even though the plan for the night in question had been discussed prior and was now already well set in motion, Jeffrey would later write these words in his book. It's hard to say now what my feelings were. I suppose I was feeling a little bit guilty myself, and my arrangement with Margaret had been made. I genuinely thought it would make Margaret happy to have the admiration and intention of another man. I thought all sorts of things. So I left the house, I went down the steps and down the garden path and sat in my car and smoked another cigarette. For as long as it took me to smoke it, I would stay there. And if Margaret wanted to change her mind, she could find me. Though as we know now, Margaret did not change her mind. And this would be the last time Jeffrey would ever see his wife alive again. If you'd like to support the show and get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and more, sign up today at patreon.com slash tapes from the dark side. It takes less than a minute to sign up and tiers start at $2 a month. That's patreon.com slash tapes from the dark side. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Lucky. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That's it. Back to the show. Dark side. His wife with another man for the night, Jeffrey decided to head back over the harbor bridge towards Pamela's place where he arrived around 4.30 a.m. She was surprised and a bit annoyed to see him, as they hadn't made arrangements for him to return, but as she woke up, she brightened and brewed them a pot of coffee, then asked him where Margaret, his wife, was, and he told her. Pamela accompanied Jeffrey to collect the Chandler children from Margaret's parents' house, arriving there around 5.20 a.m. Jeffrey dropped Pamela off a few hundred yards away from the house to wait for him on nearby Parramatta Road. Margaret's parents would hardly understand the nature of an open marriage. When Olive asked Jeffrey where her mother was, he told her that she was at home waiting for them, which, as far as he knew at the time, was the truth. Jeffrey, Pamela, and the children returned to Pamela's place in Darlington, arriving sometime between 6 and 6.30 a.m., where they slept for a few hours and had breakfast. When Jeffrey finally arrived home with his children at his house in Croydon at around 10.30 a.m., he checked to see whether Margaret was back, but couldn't find her. He was slightly perturbed, but told himself Margaret might have easily come home and then gone out for another drive with Bogle. He wasn't overly alarmed she hadn't returned, but anyways, the family didn't have a phone, so he couldn't call anyone, nor did he think to go out driving looking for her. And besides, there wasn't much cause for worry at the time. He and the children went to bed around 11 a.m., and he slept soundly until 1 p.m., when the sound of the police knocking loudly at his front door woke him. Contrary to the best efforts of police to goad Jeffrey, he was wise to their strategy. He knew from the moment he was taken into custody that there was an exceedingly rare chance that the police would appreciate the arrangement he had with his wife. From the beginning of their interaction, there was an adversarial attitude from the police towards Jeffrey and from him back at them. His attitude towards them certainly was understandable, but it didn't necessarily help his case with the police or his reputation in the media. The following day, January 2nd, Jeffrey was taken to the city morgue to identify his wife's body. Walking down a hallway of harshly lit fluorescence, smelling the bleach and formaldehyde, 
Jeffrey was taken to the viewing room. He says at least 20 policemen stood around the perimeter of the room, eyeing him. He describes the scene in an interview provided courtesy of Peter Butt's research. You couldn't possibly have conceived of a more callous way in which she was presented. The police had arranged themselves to watch my every little action, to see whether I was going to break down, whether I was going to confess. They were all standing around like ghouls, watching. Her pale, lifeless body stretched out on the cold steel medical table, bits of leaves still scattered in her hair, and a single scrape on the bridge of her nose. She was only 28 years old. Mr. Chandler, can you identify this person? She's a bit disheveled, isn't she? He replied. Detectives were taken aback. The glib comment further cemented in their minds that he was the guilty party. Surely, any ordinary man would be overwrought with grief. In Jeffrey's own words, There was no overriding impression at all, except of horror and a steely determination to not give in, to spite them all. They wanted me to collapse in a screaming heap, and I was not going to give them that satisfaction. Investigators hypothesized that the mud stains on Margaret's knees and feet was consistent with stumbling and falling as opposed to being dragged along the ground, though it hardly explained why there was no mud on her hands. Police issued a statement urging anyone who had been down at Lane Cove River around dawn on New Year's Day to come forward. As police waited for tips to come in, they were already engaged in damage control. There was much cause for concern regarding the integrity of the investigation. Firstly, police had utterly failed to secure the crime scene, with a media photographer trapezing over the undergrowth and almost tripping over Margaret's body. Another police officer lifted up Bogle's jacket and trousers, went through the pockets of the man's wallet, and folded the jacket, placing it on the grass beside Bogle's body. The officer turned Bogle's body over, compromising and thoroughly contaminating the scene. When questioned about this at the inquest, police had plenty of excuses, but hardly any satisfactory explanations. They were understaffed, but that still doesn't explain why they had handled the body so carelessly before photographers or crime scene techs could arrive. Sergeant Andrews specifically was asked why he removed the coat and trousers from the position in which they were found on Bogle's body. He said, quote, I was looking for some sign of an act of violence or something suggesting cause of death. Inquisitor. I suppose as soon as you saw the body, you realized that someone else must have been at the scene the time the man died or after he died. Sergeant Andrews. No. Inquisitor. I suppose you realized it after you looked down at the body and saw the clothing was set out in a way that the man himself could never have done? Sergeant Andrews. At that state, I did not entertain the thought. We later learned that Bogle's body was moved twice, and his clothing was moved twice, before any other crime scene techs or photographers had arrived. To further complicate the situation, detectives were said to have waited 48 hours to interview guests at the Nash party. This destroyed any chance at obtaining independently verifiable accounts of the night in question. 
The party guests naturally had been in contact with each other following the news reports, and they had subsequently discussed their version of the events with each other. With witness evidence contaminated and essentially unreliable, there was another incident to add further insult to injury. Ken Nash had freely allowed newspaper photographers into his home before it had been examined by police. When investigators did examine the evidence at the crime scene, particularly the victim's state of undress, it was clear that whatever had caused their deaths had happened relatively quickly. After all, it would be anyone's first instinct to try to readjust their clothes following a sexual encounter, if that's actually what was going on in the first place. Either way, the manner in which Bogle's jacket and trousers had been so neatly laid atop the carpet that was already on his body was most unusual. He simply couldn't have done it himself. Had Margaret covered Bogle after he fell to keep him warm in the chilly pre-dawn temperatures? before staggering away herself and falling to the ground? Could she have covered herself with the flattened beer cartons? Though this theory has an immediate hole. If she was thinking clearly enough to cover Bogle and herself, why wouldn't she have readjusted her bra so her breasts were covered? And this leads us to the next obvious question. If Margaret hadn't covered the bodies, then who had? Police divers had searched the murky river the day the bodies were found for any signs of empty bottles or containers of poison the pair may have ingested. But they didn't get far due to the levels of pollution and mud disturbances which made visibility almost zero. Could the couple have drunk something at the riverside, something that unbeknownst to them contained a lethal dose of poison, then perhaps disposed of it in the river? Yet another theory to add to the already exceedingly long list of possibilities. Indeed, the front page newspaper headlines the day after the occurrence prematurely concluded something along these lines. They declared that the pair had been poisoned. Keep in mind that in the early 1960s, the field of forensics was in its infancy in Australia and indeed around the world. Despite the newspaper claims, the post-mortem examinations were negative across the board when it came to testing for poisons. Though we must take everything forensics tells us with a grain of salt, and considering it was only the 60s, a rather large grain at that. According to Joe DeFlo, chief forensic pathologist and criminal professor at the University of Sydney, who authored the foreword to Peter Butt's book on the Bogle Chandler case, quote, the alleged expert invariably does not express certainty, but rather presents evidence, peppered with, I don't know, I can't tell, I'm not sure, maybe, and possibly. Surely this scientist is incompetent and evasive. In fact, the chances are no. What the scientist is trying to explain is the uncertainty that pervades all aspects of forensic science and it is invariably the confident and definite forensic scientist who has a poor appreciation of the limitations of their work. So, is this any different to the 1960s? Probably yes, but above all else, forensic scientists have become more cognizant of the fallibility and uncertainty inherent in their techniques, and they express their doubt more clearly. 
due to the public holiday, the autopsies of Bogle and Margaret were delayed by a day and a half, which would have made the identification of poison even more difficult. Again, from Professor Duflo. Had Bogle and Chandler died today, probably nothing obvious would have been found. Toxicology would, in all likelihood, have come up with similar negative results. Unless you know what you're looking for, you're unlikely to find it, even if it is right in front of your eyes. Estimating the time of death was a similar challenge, though it was concluded that Bogle was to have died around 5 a.m. and Margaret around 30 minutes after, but even up to two hours following Bogle's death. And as we already well know, when it came to the manner of death, that is when the imaginations of investigators and citizens ran amok. The Sunday Telegraph reported on rumors that the CSIRO was deeply embedded in occult activities and that this New Year's Eve party was perhaps some type of nefarious celebration. Everything from black masses to dark magic to devil worshiping was supposed. Though this all flew in direct contradiction to all given accounts of the party that actually took place, which was a rather tame event for New Year's Eve party standards. If anything, it was the party across town, the one Jeffrey stopped in that was thrown by the Sydney push that was the real romper. And it was this 1962 party specifically that was noted by push historian and expert Ann Coombs as one of the most extravagant on record. Quote, the Balmain New Year's Eve party had an extraordinary atmosphere. People were wandering in and out all night. There was space for amorous encounters in the dimly lit rooms. It was a rambling house. What ensued was a rabid media battle for who could run the most salacious story. And in retrospect, it's clear that this particular tragedy occurred at the worst possible time. It created something of a perfect storm. And this is because the city of Sydney was in the midst of a tabloid war between two competing papers, The Sun and The Daily Mirror. From Peter Butt's book, They were like two professional wrestlers. By any standard, the Bogle Chandler case was a sensational crime story. Apparent lovers in an adulterous relationship ending up semi-naked and dead on the bank of a river, and so it was all out stops to try to come up with the angle of what had happened. The two newspapers were at each other's throats for the biggest headline. One such theory that proved quite popular was the idea of a joint suicide pact between Bogle and Margaret, perhaps linked to the dark arts or even a murder-suicide. Friends of Margaret and even Jeffrey himself had noticed that in the lead-up to late 1962, Margaret appeared increasingly unhappy. The ennui of motherhood and life in the suburbs had set in. From Jeffrey Chandler. I was feeling rather uneasy and slightly guilty because we had not been going out. I knew I was being unfair, rather selfish, and going to the Christmas barbecue was one way of varying the domestic routine. Accepting the Nash's invitation was another. Her pleasure at being out and among adult people after some months of being only a housewife and mother was apparent though fundamentally, she never really wanted to be anything else. And like nearly everything in this case, there is another side to that story. The fact that Margaret did not seem to suffer any kind of postpartum depression. 
Quite the opposite seemed to be the case. She reveled in her role as a mother, which is made even more apparent in the next passage from Jeffrey's book. Quote, When Margaret was happy, and she almost always was happy, she always made me think of a rose when I first met her, a rose in bud. Then, after Gareth and Sean, she was like a rose in full, beautiful flower. When police interviewed Jeffrey again on January 11th, they asked if Margaret had known about the affair with Pamela Logan. That's the woman who Jeffrey spent New Year's Eve with. He responded that Margaret didn't know he was seeing Pamela specifically, but he felt his wife had caught on that there was someone else in the picture. You can only imagine how the straight-laced Sydney police interpreted this line. Was it possible Margaret was so despondent about Jeffrey having dalliances that she began to entertain the thought of taking her own life? After all, Jeffrey was the renegade of the couple. He was embedded with the Sydney push before he ever met Margaret, and while she put up with the liberal ideas of the group, it seems that she would have been perfectly fine with having a more traditional marriage. One story that on the surface seems to give some credence to this theory is that a woman named Mrs. Posey had given Margaret pills for a dog, which were for a type of tapeworm. It was a medicine called Hydorex. The media took this fact and ran a story about a suicide theory involving these pills, and Mrs. Posey's interview with the police was leaked to the press, who immediately printed a full-page poster with the headline, quote, She sold the pills, with Mrs. Posey's full name listed below. Perhaps we can't rule out suicide entirely, but the idea that she took these dog pills to induce suicide is nearly fully out of the question. The amount of tapeworm pills you'd have to take to kill yourself makes it quite unlikely. The papers went on to print stories ranging from claims of secret death rays and even CIA assassinations. In the absence of definitive facts, these stories were printed unchecked though the media's lead suspect continued to be the same one as the police, Jeffrey Chandler. And somewhat like a defiant child, understandably wrapped up in his own grief and perhaps emboldened by a definitive alibi, Jeffrey played right into the media's caricatures of him. The bearded man refused all interviews and went into hiding. And what is the one thing that everyone wants? what they can't have. The media couldn't have Jeffrey, and this fed their obsession with him. The bearded bohemian who refused to play by their rules. A few days into their investigation and enough time to wrap their heads around the situation, the police were no more ready to provide the public with an answer than they are 60 years later. Though they would still need to verify Jeffrey's story with this Pamela Logan woman, and even then, how could they be trusted not to be in collusion? If Jeffrey had somehow done his wife in, how had he pulled it off? If it was poison, how had it entered Bogle and Margaret's bodies? A real-life locked room mystery, if there ever was one. A mystery to which we think we have an answer. In the next episode of Tapes from the Dark Side. I know I mentioned a mysterious one-armed man at the end of the last episode, and I promise that was not clickbait. 
I misspoke when I said he would be featured in this episode, but he is coming up in episode three, as well as talk of venomous spiders, snakes, LSD, and more. Please stick with us for part three. My name is TZ, and I'm the host and creator of Tapes from the Dark Side. I want to thank every one of our supporters on Patreon. Even though we run a few ads on the show, the money we make from that is small in comparison to our support on Patreon. If you want to ensure the future financial stability of the show, then consider making a donation even as small as $2 a month goes a long way for us. In return, we'll give you early access to all of our episodes, bonus episodes, after shows, merch discounts, exclusive stickers, and more. It takes less than a minute to sign up, and if you have any issues with your membership, I am available on the Patreon app 24-7 to help you answer questions, whatever you need, support the things you love, consider signing up today. Patreon.com slash tapes from the dark side. Thank you to our partner, Repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. In my opinion, it's the best new app for listening to podcasts. I prefer it over Apple and Spotify and pretty much any other podcast app on the market. It's also the best place to get tapes from the dark side updates as there's a built-in Twitter newsfeed feature type thing. It's like Twitter, except not as cancerous. So why not give it a try? Download Repod today and subscribe to Tapes from the Dark Side. That's Repod, R-E-P-O-D. Thank you to Gemma Harris, who is our lead writer this season. Thank you to 2600 for the main theme and to Augusta Trevororum, who created original music for this season. Please support our musical artists. Follow them on SoundCloud and Spotify. Thank you to Peter Butt, whose book, Who Killed Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler, and The Confession have both been invaluable to us in our research. A tremendous thank you from me to all of our patrons who support us on Patreon. Our newest $5 Darksiders are Heather E., Aaron S., and Judy G., and we have one new Dark Star, C. Valentine. All of our current Dark Stars are the backbone of the show. Our top supporter is Brooke S. at $16 a month, then Florida Gallagher at $11 a month, Tara R. and Greg B. at $10 a month, and then our $9 Dark Stars are Alice S., Fran, Caitlin B., Jalen U., JCL. James H., Laura H., Chelsea P., Hannah J., Candace S., Melanie O., Catherine C., Bryson B., Isa L., Key S., Erica W., Maddie L., Gregory A., Rebecca Q., Chris S., Brooke F., Lily J., and Jen S., Remember, you can switch your Patreon membership to yearly and get two months free. That is for all new and existing patrons. Stay tuned for a promo from a true crime podcast out of Australia. 
the host reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do a promo swap, and I quickly learned that her show, Apple for the Teacher, is a charming little gem. We've had some luck recently with a string of great promo swaps, and I hope you have been checking out the shows we've been featuring. Last week was True Crime South Africa, which is an excellent show. And now, if you're looking to mix it up and give an Aussie narrator a shot, I would highly recommend Apple for the Teacher. Here is her promo. Hi, I'm Anna Thomas, and let me tell you about my podcast, Apple for the Teacher. It sure sounds like it's about reading, writing, and arithmetic, but don't let the title fool you. I'm a teacher from Australia and tell true crime stories associated with schools, which go far beyond shootings and teacher sexual misconduct. If you're like me, you may feel that you know enough about some high-profile cases, such as Ted Bundy and the Zodiac Killer. Apple for the Teacher presents lesser-known stories, such as Albino student murder in Africa, schoolgirl sexual slavery in Libya, a school suicide bombing in Pakistan, a student murdered and buried in his school in India, a teacher beheaded in France, Polish teachers executed by the Nazis, just to name a few. But you'll also find school-based tragedies, such as a school bus stranded in a snowstorm, a school wiped out by a landslide, the drowning of students in a sinking ship. It can be described as a mixed bag of diverse stories, So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then give it a listen. And I hope you can join me soon. But until then, remember to be a good apple. A dark side. We all understand that we come from different places. We come from different beliefs. We always, we're not always going to agree, but that's what civilization is supposed to be about. Yes, sir. That's what society is supposed to be about. I can respect your opinion, you know, even if I mm. disagree with it, I can respect you as a person. Mm. I think that's problem with probably the problems we have with this country and this division. Yes, sir. You know, because we're all on opposite sides of the spectrum, but I can respect if Tracy G feels differently than I do. Yes, sir. You know, hmm, I want to hear where that comes from, learn mm-hmm. more about mm-hmm. Tracy, because I got to live around Tracy. She got to live around me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.